This is Viewpoints, a discussion of top news stories and the issues that affect you from Canada's biggest talk show hosts, In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I'm Jerry Agar. Welcome. Good to have you along on Viewpoints. And joining me here, Supriya Davidi, Crestview Strategies and a Sun newspaper columnist, national columnist, editor or comment editor for the Sun newspapers is Anthony Fury and Michael Corrin, author and columnist. Welcome all. Hello. Now, Hello. we're going to start with this story only because Michael Corrin was so heated up about it. We had... <laughs> is, it, is it about Tottenham Hotspur? And, and you know what? That's always a good reason if uh, one of the one of the panelists wants to go off on a story, I'm happy to do it. And it is the story of the Pope and Donald Trump. Now, it got talked about at the end of the week, but there were some people who were making the comment that it's a tempest in a teapot. It's just a story in the media for a day or so. And Michael Corrin, you think it's much more important than that? I think that's, a, with all due respect, a very callow reading of the world. Uh, what people tend to do often, and we all do it, is to see the world through the, the purview of their own feelings. Look, this is not just about uh, two people speaking about each other. All right. First of all, the Pope was asked a question, and he said, essentially, if anybody thinks that they should build a wall uh, around a country or between uh, the United States and Mexico, that's not Christian. Trump, of course, rose to the bait immediately and took umbrage at his Christianity being questioned. Well, yeah. Look, what, Whenever the Pope says something which is controversial. You then have a whole legion of people who come forward to say he's been mistranslated or misunderstood or misinterpreted, which I find incredibly irritating because the Pope says things for a reason. Now, I think he's right to question Donald Trump's Christianity. I don't think Donald Trump is a Christian. I think his policies are are profoundly anti-Christian. But there's another side to this. Um, Hillary Clinton believes in equal marriage, as I do. She believes in in abortion rights, as I do. But they're both anathema to Roman Catholic teaching. The Pope's not said a word about her. The Pope met with the Russian patriarch, and the Russian patriarch believes that people become terrorists because of homosexuality. He didn't comment about that. The Pope is very selective in who he likes and who he doesn't like, and I think the criticism was rather clumsy, but there's also more to this. I mean, I don't understand why people have missed this. Um, This will play into the hands of the evangelical vote. You know the states better than I do, Jerry, but I know it pretty well. There are many evangelicals in the United States who who think the Pope borders on the Antichrist. They will embrace Trump for this. There are many Catholics in the U.S. who are more conservative who have turned against Pope Francis. This will confirm what they already believe, and they will also go further towards Trump. This plays into Trump's hands. Um, The Pope has made himself popular on the left again. Uh, Trump doesn't care about that. The Catholics who will be uh, pro-Pope on this are the Hispanic Catholics who wouldn't have voted for Trump anyway. Who are but, Democrats, for, for by and large. Exactly. So, so it doesn't affect the Republicans That's right. I think it's a fascinating issue, and it's one of the most interesting things, or the more interesting thing that's happened in U.S. politics, and yet some people are saying because they aren't interested in religion, it doesn't matter. It really matters. Do you think, Supriya, it will move the needle in any direction on Trump? I don't think it moves the needle, but it definitely gets him in the media cycle. I, I mean, Nikki Haley endorsed Marco Rubio, and then all of a sudden this Pope kerfuffle comes about and who's talking about yeah. Nikki Haley endorsing Marco Rubio like we're all talking about, about the Pope and now it's it's two days you know it's it's, it's been a couple, at least several days later and we're still talking about it and rightfully we should because I think it's a big deal but I also think it it, it galvanizes Trump's base and and conservative bases generally to have a foreigner who is essentially a head of state mind mm-hmm. you you yes. know um, opining on US politics it just it, it doesn't it doesn't bode well and if I was American even though I'm, I'm not a Trump supporter I, I it would it would bother me I'd be like stay the heck out of our politics. You do what you do and we'll do what we do and leave it at that. 
I, I'm so glad Michael's come uh, come around to agree with me. Those arguments we used to have on television, where I said the Pope is more than fallible; he's fallible most of the time. And I find right now, whenever we're finding the Pope making some sort of pronouncement that hits front page news, he's just dead wrong. Wrong, I think, for the reasons that Supriya brings up. I mean, this is I, I knew once that, and I'm not I'm an atheist, and I was I, I grew up Roman Catholic, and I'm no longer a part of that. Once that the concave brought in this sort of radical Jesuit from Latin America, I knew that the Roman Catholic Church was just going to turn into far more of a farce than it is right now. And uh, to me, the Pope is just like some sort of Justin Trudeau figure now. It's all gesture <laughs> politics. He's just saying whatever trendy thing. I mean, I feel like the guy's trolling like these socialist blogs now to come up with whatever the talking That's points a are bit now. Harsh. It's totally, I, oh, I, I think the leader of the Roman Catholic Church, whoever it is at whatever time, deserves strenuously harsh treatment. Particularly this guy, Supriya's right. Come on, you know, have some have some dignity for the place of office that I think Ratzinger, you know, actually had. While yes, I disagreed with him on he much, he understood his role, and I don't think this Pope understands his role. I think he's, you know, part of the. He thinks he's part of the Twitterati. You know, back out of the U.S. presidential race, well, man. He, he's he's a. A Latin American in more ways more than a pope. And when he was in Argentina, yeah. look, when he was in Argentina, he, he said that uh, same-sex marriage w was a, a, a profound threat to our way of life, was uncivilized. He compared uh, the whole, if you like, gay aspirations. He compared them to the Hitler Youth and the Italian fascist movement when he was in the Philippines. He tends to change his message. When he was in Washington, he prayed in public not for the victims of the abuse crisis, children who were raped by Roman Catholic clergy. He prayed for Roman Catholic clergy who were hurt by the stigma of the abuse crisis. It, look, it's well, not, like a union leader. You know, he's being a classic well, good, representing the boys. I think he's right about Trump. But, but what I resent is that he's very selective in the comments he makes, and he does contradict Predict himself over and over again, and what was said earlier is he is a head of state. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, and, and he, he should have more respect for an alternative head of state. But All right, since we've talked about Trump, let's jump to the other side of that equation. And if we're going to talk about American politics here a little bit, and Supriya, you had a column this week in the Toronto Sun taking on Bernie Sanders. Um, you, we have leaders maybe on both sides of the equation here who seem to be more populist than anything else. And uh, tell us your your theory on Sanders. Well, I mean, my main issue with Sanders is that you have all of his supporters uh, who will go out of their way to criticize Republican policies and criticize, you know, right-leaning populists, but for whatever reason, they don't seem to see any fault in any of Sanders' proposals. You know, and he's proposed some some pretty radical things. Uh, free, single-payer, universal health care. Of course, he hasn't described what system, how he's going to pay for it. E economists have suggested his numbers are off by at least one to three trillion dollars. That's with a T. Uh, free college tuition, which a third of the burden will fall onto states. Uh, how are states going to have to deal with that? That's, you know, an issue that he doesn't really seem to care about. And it's also something he can't actually load on the state uh, because he doesn't have a constitutional right to do that. Of course that. he does it. And, 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 and these are questions that, that I think, you know, that, that we let the left get away with and we don't scrutinize either leftist politicians or their supporters to the same degree that we do on the right. Just because we find what Donald Trump is saying objectionable and what Bernie Sanders is saying may not, you know, offend us to our core in the same way doesn't mean that his policies are any, you know, ab above criticism. And, and, and I think we need to be calling them out on it. And, you know, there are a gajillion things you can say about the Democratic race and, and criticize Hillary Clinton all you want. There are a gajillion legitimate reasons to criticize her. Uh, but the fact that you have Bernie Sanders that's rising up, a guy with zero foreign policy experience, who claims to be leading some sort of political revolution and hate the system he's been a part of for over 25 years, I think is absolutely ridiculous. And to the crux of your column, I mean, you're essentially beseeching more left-wing people to actually get good left-wing candidates who will actually implement uh, in this very sort of 
you know, logistically accessible way, their platforms be able to implement their views. And and I see the same problem in the right here in Canada. I mean, right now, Trudeau's going to be very heavily criticized for, for subsidizing Bombardier. I, I think it's totally wrong, that form of corporate welfare. And the conservative opposition will be right to totally pile upon him. But at the same time, Stephen Harper was a failed conservative in a number of ways in terms of excessive corporate welfare, excessive uh, boutique tax credits that were totally embarrassing. And the right in Canada needed to be better at having vigorous debate within its own own side, like, like you're saying about Sanders and the Democrats. See, look, I, I have had experience on the right, and I suppose I now on the relative left, and it seems to me that what is always so interesting is they're about as bad as each other when it comes to inconsistency and even hypocrisy. But Bernie Sanders, uh, no experience of foreign policy. Stephen Harper has barely travelled, and even as Prime Minister, I mean, he began to travel, but he had limited experience. George Bush, very little. Uh, Obama, limited. Some of what Sanders is proposing is obviously meant to provoke. It is not properly feasible or even plausible, but at least he's moving the argument. The United States has been bogged down in policy. Isn't that a false argument, though? To well, be no, saying no more you're, than you're, the alternatives. I you're, mean, you're look at what the, the argument with with like unicorns and rainbows and saying that we're going to give free college tuition and we're going to end mass incarceration. You mean like you mean like building a wall between one country and another? I mean, the, a lot of these, <laughs> a lot of what the Americans are claiming are bizarre. They're simply not possible. But I think what Bernie Sanders is interest. I mean, the way he interests me is that. He's actually proposing something which is genuinely liberal and genuinely part of the Democrat tradition. Now, you don't have to vote for that, but what we've had up to now... Socialist Democrat tradition. And what, well, not even so much that. Social Democrat. Look, I was raised in a country in the UK that enabled me to go to university from a working-class home, enabled a National Health Service to take care of us that otherwise we wouldn't have had. What he's proposing, I think what he really wants is Canada. He really wants America to become like Canada. Yeah, but we don't have universally free higher education. We have heavily subsidized. Yes, we do. But I, they, I, you know, look, it's not a case of people in the United States can't go to university. Just like many Canadian young people, they just don't want to pay for it. Actually, a lot of people can't go to university. I've got a son doing a PhD in the United States. Yeah, I've got two sons who are know, doing, doing of, college. Of, in, I'm not unfamiliar with this. And a lot of people can't go. And a lot of people... And, no, that's not true. A lot of people, they have state universities they can go to. They Jerry, have all kinds of opportunities. A lot of people are told at the very earliest age in the United States that you're not university material. I mean, let's be realistic. That here. has nothing to do with the financing schema, though. Oh, yeah, that's right. to do with racism no, of lower like, expectations and so forth. You mentioned race. It's not only race, but finance is also an issue. But, Michael, by your argument, then then Quebec would, because Quebec has the highest subsidized education and cheapest college twi- university tuition, um, we would have the highest participation in university and the highest completion rate, which I'm saying we because I'm from Quebec. Mm. But, you know, we we don't actually. Quebecers have one of the lowest completion rates for university, a huge high school dropout rate. Um, And so it's not just about cost. I don't think it's that easy. I think there are a lot of other factors at play. Yes, there are many reasons of sociology. But the the financial difference between Quebec and Ontario is not as anywhere near as enormous as it is in the United States. What does the average parent pay in those, even those schools that charge supposedly $50,000, $60,000 a year? The average parent's load is $12,000. Because they have all kinds of scholarships. Of they have, exactly. Okay, exactly. It, it isn't really actually what a lot of Canadians think, and it isn't what Bernie is selling. And in fact, as far as I'm concerned, in Canada or the United States, if you don't have any skin in the game as a student, then, you know, what you get for nothing well, is good for nothing. Right. Look, my, my other son uh, was offered a place at two universities in the United States. It was $32,000. Soccer scholarship, he would have paid the same as he does in Canada. He would have paid seven. All that's right. the reality. We're going to continue here through the hour, and coming up, blame politicians, not Metrolinks, for that whole fiasco of the train out to the airport is what the Globe and Mail writes, and we'll see how the panelists feel about it. This is Viewpoints on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010.
You're listening to Viewpoints on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I'm Jerry Agar. Sapria Davidi is here, Crestview Strategy. She's a columnist for the Toronto Sun. Anthony Fury is the national comment editor for the Sun chain of newspapers. And Michael Corrin, author and columnist. The Globe and Mail takes on the issue of the train out to the airport. In fact, what happened over the last week was pretty amusing. Nobody's riding this train. Well, not literally nobody, but... I've been on it once. Okay, we'll see. Anthony rode the train. When it was free? The one person did it. Yay. Yeah, but <laughs> I they did thought it for work. We need more than that. And so they gave it away. And of course, ridership went way up. So somewhere in between what they've been charging, which gets towards 30 bucks one way and free uh, is the sweet spot, I suppose, that they're going to have to look for. But the Globe and Mail writes, in the city star for transit, the biggest criticism of Toronto's airport train is that it isn't really transit. It's the sort of swish train the private sector would build. But the private sector looked at the project and eventually decided it didn't make sense. Metrolinx, the provincial transit agency, is getting pilloried for how this experiment has gone. But they say at the Globe and Mail, most of the fault lies with its political masters. Metrolinx was told by the provincial government to build a high-end train service. So it did. Anthony, is that a legitimate argument? For about five years now, I've been arguing that almost all arm's length agencies in Ontario either need to be privatized or rolled into the operations of the actual ministry. Metrolinks should not exist. It doesn't need to exist for this very reason that we're dealing with right now. When it succeeds, politicians are like, look what I did. So wonderful. Mm -hmm. And when it fails, they go, well, this is some arm's length agency. Blame Bruce McQuaig and everyone else on the leadership team. No, the buck has to stop with the deputy minister and the political representative. This is a challenge we're facing right now. Metrolinks, and the key example is Orange. They wanted to act like this sort of private sector company that was dealing with free market forces, but they just weren't. And instead of getting the best of both worlds, we get the worst of both worlds. And I find with Metrolink's planning, we get both failed government programs, because government programs can and do often succeed, and we get failed private sector programs. I think it's just a shame. And another example that we need to uh, disband it. And I think it's also a total scandal that the citizens of Toronto did not get their downtown relief line, which they've been promised since like 1977, and they deserve it. And instead, they've gotten this thing that I will only use when I know the company's paying for it for a business trip. All right, there are two separate things there. It's whether or not we could keep Metrolinks, but the first thing is to try and make this train to the airport work on some level. Can that be done, do you think, Supriya? No, I absolutely don't think it can be done. It's so inconvenient. Unless you're within walking distance to Union, yep. how does it make any sense for anybody, for anybody in the city? Which I am, which is why I took right, it that Yeah, time. exactly. <laughs> and, and, and if you're not, or you're traveling with your spouse or your children, to, like, and then you're paying for another $30 ticket one way, take a cab, take an Uber. It, it'll end up being cheaper for you to go and Take I just a limo. Yeah, exactly. I just don't see I don't see a financial incentive there and also you have to work with the, c- the convenience factor. If you're taking a train and you're lugging a kid or you're lugging your husband, you know, either way, hey. you, have, you, have, you have Do you lug your husband? <laughs> well, you know, he's 6 foot 3, so not all the time, but yeah. I, I I try to when I can. <laughs> um, but, but, but you know, then you have uh, bags and stuff. It's just it's it's cumbersome, yeah. especially in the winter. It's not not nothing about this to me ever seemed like a good idea. And if they had just bothered to do not even like a proper focus group, but just ask around a dinner table or at a bar, I feel like they would have gotten their answer. What do you think? Can it be saved, Michael? No. Uh, I, for, the, for a three-year period, I probably flew every second week, uh, either in Canada or to the United States. We live in High Park. Mm-hmm. Now, on my own, uh, really quite convenient. Just go to the local TTC, go to Kipling, get the bus to the airport. Very cheap. Right, I've uh, done that. Uh, the alternative 
if there were two of us, if there were bags, get a cab, and it probably would have cost about $40 door-to-door. -door. Even a limousine, $45 maybe. No, it's incredibly overpriced. It's inconvenient. But what Anthony said, I mean, this is extremely important because I, I think often we don't know how other countries function. The, if you are a minister of the crown, if you are a minister, a, a major politician given a cabinet position, you are meant to take not only responsibility but do the job properly. You sit down with advisors and you plan something. This idea of everything is vicarious. It's through another party, so you can either blame or take credit. It's not uniquely Canadian, but we are in a small minority of countries that operate this system. If you are the a minister for transport, if you are a minister for... Then be it. Do the job. And the, no, this is... It's more expensive, it's wasteful, and invariably, it is also less competent. Could it be saved, anybody wants to weigh in here, if what we did was give up on the idea that it's an express to the airport, it's just a more convenient train to the airport with fewer stops, and add some stops, and have a pricing structure that allows other people to use it as a means of transit to and from work? Yeah, I think that could totally work. And what you're suggesting, Jerry, is essentially what businesses do when they sit down and go, well, what's the market viability of this? So, yeah, there's totally a sweet spot in the pricing where people are going to start uh, to pay for it. And you can add a couple stops here and there. And the quality or the, the appeal of it being express train dips away. But you find that sweet spot. So certainly it can exist. But to your original point in all of this, if there really was a compelling market case for this, there'd be people fighting over the chance to build this before Metrolinx yeah. got involved. Well, public transportation, though, is largely going to lose money. It's set up to lose money. They want it to lose money because they feel, no, I mean, that's the model, right? You start talking to, to many politicians and transit people about a way to even break even. They will tell you, well, that's not the goal. It's not supposed to break even. It's supposed to be subsidized. So, therefore, the private sector is never going to be able to make this work. Well, I mean, look, you, you, what you mentioned earlier Heath, I mean, Heathrow is, is a much bigger airport, of course, and it's further out from the centre of London. But there are alternatives. You can get the Heathrow Express, which is more expensive, where there's one stop all the way into the centre of town. Or, as it was suggested earlier, you can get the ordinary train that'll take you about 55 minutes to the centre of town, where it stops at all sorts of places. I decided I was in a rush last time I was there to take the latter. But there, we don't have that alternative. If you just put more stops on it, it defeats the whole object. It's no longer an express and nobody will use it. The other problem is that the train can only hold the capacity of something like 350 people, right, at a time. So if you're talking about using this as an alternative for either, like, rush hour traffic or, or yeah. what have you, I just don't think it, it makes any sense unless we replace the trains, in which case, hey, how are we going to do that? <laughs> so we're stuck with it. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. Okay. Well, I mean, would it make sense then to just say, no, actually, we don't want to be stuck with it. Let's just cancel it. Stop no, running the train. I don't think you can do that. It's already Why there. Not? We've already paid the capital costs. Let's, let's, I mean, to your point of how can we make uh, lemonade out of this, let's just do it. Let's find the best way to use it. And again, why it's a tragedy that there's so many projects that people need. There's so many communities that are not well served uh, with transit. And we had to do this one. I mean, oh, my Lord. But let's make the best out of it. Like the, well, like the Shepherd line. I'm in support of expanding it and finding a way to make the best out of it as North York grows. We're going to continue here on Viewpoints, and upcoming, a Saskatoon man poses as a teen girl online and then confronts potential sex offender. This isn't something unique to Saskatoon, by the way. There was a guy in Mississauga who was doing the same thing. It's people who've seen this TV show to catch a predator, and their hearts Viewpoints in the right place. Viewpoints continues on In-Depth Radio, not, News Talk 1010. It's the I'm Jerry Agar, with me, the national problem. comment That's editor for on the, on the Sun newspapers, Anthony Fury, author and columnist Michael Corrin, and from Crestview Strategies and a columnist for the Toronto Sun, Supriya Davina. So, 
Davidi. I mispronounced your last name there for a second. It's okay. It rhymes with spaghetti, actually. It's Davetti Spaghetti. Does it? Yeah. Is that what the kids called you when you were little? It, actually, no. That's how I used to have to explain it, because I grew up in a very small town in Quebec, and everybody was Francophone. So yeah. I'd have to be like, it rhymes with spaghetti. And then they'd go, eh, spaghetti. And then I'd be like, whatever. Just <laughs> just go with it. Yeah. I see. Yeah. So it's Supriya Davidi. Yeah, there you go. Saskatoon man poses as a teen girl online. He confronts a potential sexual offender. What he was doing, he said, was going online a Appearing to be a young girl from 12 to 15, he said within three hours of a post where he said he was a 15-year-old girl, 150 people contacted him wanting to meet up, wanting to hook up, all that sort of stuff, he says. Now, he would go out then for the hookup and bring along a video camera. One guy that he videotaped quickly lost his job. Um, it would seem that the guy indeed want to did want to hook up with a young girl. One person actually told him... Uh, no, yeah, I was here to meet the 12-year-old girl, but I just wanted to take her to a movie. <laughs> because what guy doesn't want to take a 12-year-old girl to the movies? Um, so, uh, Anthony, is the guy, I think his heart's in the right place. He wants to bring down perverts, but should private vigilantes be doing this? Well, let's not forget that I think generally the reason why we see vigilantes start behaving like this is they feel, rightly or wrongly, that they're filling some sort of vacuum. So if there was this impression that as a society we were really robustly going after these folks, and maybe we already are because obviously this policing happens behind closed doors or not you know, out publicly, he feels that this isn't being done adequately and this is his way of sending out a message saying, no, I don't think the police are doing it right. I want to do it this way. I, I don't I don't have any sort of major problems that he's doing. I just don't think he's doing it in the best way. I think the police should be doing it, perhaps doing it more. And also he may, in fact, end up uh, coming into conflict with the what the police are doing and might be making it more difficult for their tasks. Yeah, yeah. More to that point, I think also any evidence that he collects would be absolutely inadmissible in a of court of law. So it just goes out it goes out the door. Like, I, I, I agree with you, Jerry. I, I do I do think his heart's in the right place. And I admire his moxie, if you will, for taking this on and, and you know, wanting to rid the world of perverts. But once he <laughs> gets that video camera and, and, and once he gets that meeting, then what? Then it's just like, I'm, I'm filming you, so I'm shaming you, and I maybe I may show it to your employer, but there's no real legal ramifications for these individuals. Well, Supriya, to go back to what Anthony said, that maybe some of these individuals feel that they are fulfilling a need because the police aren't doing it. It, it seems that we learn more and more about this, that the number of people wanting to engage with child pornography, to have sex with children, is so alarmingly high, it's difficult yeah. for the police to do it all. Yeah, and that's that really not fun to consider. No, that, that's not. I mean, look, I don't have kids yet, and I, I can just imagine what or how much of a paranoid parent I will become. Uh, and it's 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 frightening, and, and I agree with you. And the more you hear about these stories, the more troubling it is. So I don't know if it's an issue of the police need to put more resources in it, creating a, a new department or what have you. But either way, I, I just don't think this guy is no, going it's not, about it the right it, way. I'm sorry, it's not right. I've got four kids, and I get really tired of, of this obsessive paranoia. I don't think this guy's heart is in the right place. I, I really don't. Look, I, I, for, for 12 years, I had that show in Burlington, and we used to interview that the cops both the OPP and Metro who dealt with these issues I was always stunned by how normal they were I mean and and, and child pornography I, mean, I don't want to say too much on, on this show but 
we're not talking about 12-year-old kids here. I mean, sometimes we're talking about newly born babies. Yeah, I understand. I mean, it's just so repugnant. Okay, but wait a the, minute. They, 150 people very quickly yes. contacted him to get the, together with a young the girl. The police are highly competent. Now, what was said earlier was, is exactly right. First of all, any evidence would not be admissible in court at all. It may well be the police are already... I mean, they, they, they have enormous numbers of sting operations that they're working on. But this is another example of, I fulfill a television fantasy, therefore I am. He's seen this on TV. It's been done by various shows. Some of them, it wasn't about uh, pedophilia or pornography. It was about adultery. It was about people who were cheating on, on their wives. No, it's a thrill. I mean, he's made himself a public person. He wants to be known as, as a vigilante. Vigilanteism, even though sometimes it can be desirable, well, not desirable, it can be tempting, is never desirable. There was a case in the UK where someone who was actually a, a pediatrician, and this is a true story, it was in the west of England, was a pediatrician. The house was, was attacked, an arson attack, because they thought the person was a pedophile. It was in, it, the person was in a newspaper. You mean they couldn't tell the difference between pediatrician and pedophile? Generally, Jerry, a lot of the people indulging in this are pretty dumb. <laughs> they are, they are emotion-driven, and they want to point, you know, the bad people out there. There are lots of bad people. There are bad people who are stealing things that belong to others. There are bad people, very wealthy and powerful, who apparently are revered in society who should be brought down. But they go after those who we now identify as the worst in the world. And I mean, they, and as a father, yes, they are repugnant to me, but no, this is bad on many levels. Okay, so you don't believe the problem is as bad as some people want to make it appear, but yet again, I go back to 150 people very quickly contacted him in order to get together with a 12 to 15-year-old girl. Yep. And, Anthony, when we do have arrests and they are announced, it's a huge number of guys. Yeah, and, and I, I disagree with Michael saying that the police are sort of all over it and quite robust, only in that those 150 guys who are, who are looking to connect with young girls probably aren't even in the in the snare net that police are looking at. Because when you read about charges and then it goes to court and whether they, they get... Uh, uh, found guilty or not, you find these are people who uh, who are trafficking in millions of photos and videos and doing massive outreach programs to try and trade and deal and profiteer on, off of child pornography or even trading the actual young people around between each other. These are not sort of the, the middle hitting people. These are the heavy hitters. So I don't even think we're going after the heavy, the, the middle people. And we're certainly not going after the sort of low threshold people who are maybe just trying to go out and uh, abuse a person, you know, a few times a year kind of thing. I don't even think they're How, on the radar. Do we know the age of all these guys, by the way? Um, these guys are in their early 20s. The one guy that we were talking about from Saskatoon, I believe, said that his reason for getting involved in this in the first place is that he was raped as a child. Oh, well, wow. that, often people... Uh, I mean, also some abusers, they become abusers because of what they've suffered as a child, but not always. I mean, that's not an excuse. Uh, sometimes it's a reason. But again, we can't apply that to everyone. Some people, I mean, I've seen so many interviews with, with pedophiles who would say, no, I had a completely normal, loving upbringing. I just, uh, maybe the pornography became more and more addictive. They wanted more and more things that would titillate them. Mm. Um, there's also a whole critique here of, of big business and industry and advertising that, that has even now, it's still portraying sexuality as, as, as being acceptable at a younger and younger level and sexualizing children. Yeah, but I also think there's an issue here about, you, you know, having been a young girl once upon a time, uh, <laughs> it, you girls understand at a very young age that there are men out there who are going to be creepy. The very sure. first time I remember being creeped out by like a 40-year-old man, I was probably about 
10 years old playing uh, a, a PlayStation at Radio Shack. You know, these I've apologized so many times for this, haven't no. I? There's <laughs> something very sexy about, you know, playing a, a PlayStation a, a, a at Radio Shack. Yeah, you know? no, exactly. And, and, and I remember telling my mom and she had to have a, you know, that's the first time I ever I had the talk with my mother about there are men who are going to be creepy and you're not going to, you won't be doing anything wrong, but this is just the way it is. Can so, I ask what he did? Uh, he asked me uh, what if, if I if my T-shirt felt soft um, and if, if it was newly like dry laundered or something that like, I smelled good. And, and he I, wanted to touch it. No, he didn't touch it. But he said this to me. And then I think the store clerk no- noticed, I guess, the look on my face and came in and asked him to leave the store. Good. OK. Um, while my mom was uh, buying batteries like in, in on, on the other side of the store. So, you, you know, this is this is just something that, that I think that we need to be cognizant of. And, and I'm, I'm not I, and I agree with you, Michael. I'm not saying that, you know, everybody needs to become a vigilant. But I just don't think it's as overblown, I think, as like, I don't think it's an overblown issue. If anything, I think it's an underblown issue. Uh, We've got to be very careful here. I mean, again, raise four kids and certainly with the two girls, well, the boys too, by the way, uh, we we made sure they were very streetwise and knew what was going on. Uh, there are all sorts of issues facing kids today. Beyond this, there's the issue of drugs. When I was a kid, cannabis was on the cutting edge. Now, coke and crack are easily available. But yeah, I mean, kids have to be aware. I just worry about the sort of people, and we might even discuss sites like this later, who, who make almost a living out of saying the world is full of pedophiles. It really isn't. Well, it's still an alarmingly high number. You know, I guess I grew up thinking that it was just a fringe thing that maybe thing. one in millions was interested in child Not pornography, millions, it appears. But the internet has jacked it up, I think. I think it's one of those weird, I, I mean, I sort of in half agreement with Michael, but it's one of those weird things where where if we have no interest in it and none of our friends do or seem to or whatnot, and it never comes up, you assume no one has an interest in it. It's like, I, I think I am guilty of sometimes underestimating the degree of racism that's out there because I don't have a racist bone in my body, neither do any of my friends, and we're just pretty, you know, easygoing. And then you come across these people who are kind of like bizarrely horrendous. You go, I, I really didn't think this stuff was happening out there, but maybe it is in a greater degree than, Twitter, I, aren't you? Th- than I expect. You see them in the, the, the racist, I mean, anti-Semitism, which again, I, I thought... Not even an issue anymore. My golly, that has really risen up lately. Coming up, Ottawa still considering Bombardier bailout. We'll discuss. This is Viewpoints on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. You're listening to Viewpoints on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I'm Jerry Agar. Joining me, author and columnist Michael Corrin, national comment editor for the Sun chain of newspapers, Anthony Fury, and from Crestview Strategies and Toronto Sun columnist Supriya Davidi. Ottawa still considering Bombardier bailout, according to Transport Minister Mark Garneau. He says the federal government is still considering a request for financial assistance after Canada's largest aerospace company announced its plan to cut 7,000 jobs over two years. Is this a company, Anthony, that Canada should be proud of, or is it the biggest welfare operation in the nation? It actually factually is the biggest welfare operation in the nation. Uh, Mark Milke, who's an economist, does a lot of studies, uh, put up a chart that showed uh, the ratio of major employers, like top 25 employers in Canada, in which Bombardier is one. They have the most amount of corporate welfare, but they're only like the 12th in terms of number of employees they have, whereas Onyx Corp has the most number of employees in Canada when you break it down to their subsidiaries. They've received zero corporate welfare. I think this is embarrassing. Bombardier has been insulated from free market economics for far too long. And when you do that to companies, they never clean up their act because they know there's always this golden parachute underneath them. The fat cat 
bureaucrats never have to learn and change their management structure, and you never get toxic practices out of the business. I think this is a terrible thing, and it's bad that Quebec gave them a billion dollars, and I really hope the feds don't because uh, people's tax dollars, their billion-dollar tax dollars, deserve to be in their pockets more than just shuffled off to some corporation. So I agree with a lot of what Anthony said, um, but I'm just going to be play. I'm going to argue with you just a little bit because it's fun. Because you're a Quebecer. Yeah, yeah. Um, But... (laughs) Aren't, isn't there something to be said, though, about the kinds of jobs that Bombardier provides and the fact that there are jobs at stake? And if, you know, we bailed out, you know, not bail out, but we, you know, bought shares of GM and, and helped out the auto industry, that should, shouldn't Quebec also get? And I, I actually agree with everything you said. I think it's corporate welfare. But, but isn't there something to be said about our, our aeronautical industry and the fact that, like, you know, whether you go in the U.S. or, or Brazil, these types of industries, just because because of the nature of it and how costly it is, often do rely on state subsidies? No, as a very good point and people make that point i i think one two wrongs don't make a right two we can never beat the u.s or larger econ- economic jurisdictions in this sort of race to the bottom with sort of preferential tax credits can't happen because they just have more heft than us and thirdly it is an interesting point that aerospace purchases are clearly this sort of pseudo public sector because who's going to be buying them usually only governments uh but the corollary argument there is then when snc lavalin has a bad year should we bail them out because who's the only people who are really b- building you know b- buying bridges and roads and so forth or governments too. Uh, so I just think we got to move to the less is more rather than just this kind of chasing each other to the bottom. Uh, you mentioned Brazil, which is interesting because the Brazilian actually government subsidy of the aircraft industry has been a success, uh, but it's different from the way we've done it here. I mean, here you have a country that is an emerging, relatively speaking, an emerging superpower. Brazil, in terms of its economic uh, uh, progress, could change the world. Look, I really am in two minds. I, you quoted Mark Milkey, I mean, an economist with, with a certain point of view, let's be honest. There are other people sure, who have a different analysis. Sure, but real. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not questioning his intelligence. I'm questioning his motivation, his views, his philosophy. I don't believe there is anything like the free market, and there never has been. I, the idea of people losing their jobs is repugnant to me. At the same time, are we just postponing? If it's a question of we can keep these jobs for another couple of years, then there's no point. Let's deal with it now. Um, I was down in uh, Wichita, Kansas, not that uh, long ago. Um, I would never go again unless I had to. And it's fascinating how, how Bombardier, I mean, it, it really is a huge international company. And you get, you know, I'm really proud of this. And you realize, actually, we're just paying for so much of it. I think there is a middle way. I think you can be hard with a company without removing all of the subsidy. I think there is a middle way, but I'm not sure the government is going to play that game. There's so much politics involved. Do you know okay. who would have bought a bunch of Bombardier jets? Island Airport. Mm. I thought you going to say Assad. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But here's the problem that I have with it. Sapria brought up the bailouts. You can call it buying stock bailout, whatever it is. Uh, propping up the weak auto companies. We're propping up this weak company here in Canada, Bombardier, for uh, generations, it seems. And the problem that I have with it is people say, well, it saves jobs. I don't think a weakening of the economy, supporting the weaker, less efficient companies, is a way to be, uh, build a strong economy long term. And a strong economy is where the jobs are. I- I've long been a fan, and I, I have a column the other day on the Bombardier deal, and I reference a column that Mitt Romney wrote in 2008, and one of the best kind of ideas that Romney actually forwarded in the presidential election was the concept of managed bankruptcy. Uh, a lot of people think bankruptcy means all the bums are out in the streets, everyone gets laid off, you shut down the doors. Managed bankruptcy is essentially what happens when average folks go bankrupt. You know, you can't have good access to credit for about seven years, and you're forced to change your bad ways. Um, and hopefully you can do it in a way where as many 
employees stick around as possible. They still have their pensions saved and so forth, but the golden parachutes from the guys at the top go away and you have to yep. reform management practices. Okay, so Friday we heard from at least one of the unions, the outside workers, QP Local 416, that they had a tentative deal with the city of Toronto so there won't be a garbage strike um, unless, of course, for some reason the members don't want to ratify the thing. And it's going to be a few days until we know what the real deal is. Nobody's telling us what the details are. The head of the union didn't. John Tory didn't. So we have very little to work on. I'm only going to ask this quick question. Supriya, are you confident the taxpayers are going to be happy? No, I'm not, but I'm a pessimist. I agree on both fronts. <laughs> okay. I, I cannot recall um, a, an industrial conflict where we knew so little of the details. Seriously. Huh. I, yeah. I don't even know what the unions actually are asking for. And every, every time we've had, and we have it all the time, you, you know what it is and you, you can take a side. But I don't even know what the details are of all of this. My understanding of the details from talking to people inside City Hall on this is that city want the city wants to claw back a little bit on things like benefits. The, the the city workers don't pay anything on benefits. It's 100% provided. That doesn't happen in the private sector. And so the city is saying, you're going to have to start paying some of this. Now, the union called that deep cuts. It's hard for us to know because we don't know what the percentage was. Exactly. Yeah. The challenge with some of the, the way these contracts are, they probably are deep cuts based on what they were getting previously. And that's the challenge, the sort of us us versus them mm-hmm. issue that the taxpayers versus the city workers are dealing with. Yeah, and it's very hard for average folk to feel bad for somebody that that's losing, uh, you know, losing, and I use that in air, scare air quotes here, uh, benefits that they never had access to or not, nobody in their family ever had access to. It's really, it's hard to relate to and it's hard to, you know, I, I don't know. Like, there it's, are twin solitudes. Case. I mean, I have no dental coverage at all and uh, my and the family don't eat. It's a problem with the British, I understand. Well, yeah, teeth in general. But I mean, a, a lot of people live like this and then they, they see others. But if, you, if you've become used to something, of course, and relatively speaking, you feel you're being hard done by. There was an interesting little bubble up of controversy that came up and went away, but it's still worth discussing in the brave new world of everybody's a journalist. And it was that Ezra Levant, late of Sun News, as are some of us here, um, and now has his own online effort. And uh, he's got a bunch of employees and some stringers across the country. So he's doing much better at this than the average person who tries to run some kind of online blog or news operation. And not surprisingly, because he's uber conservative, Rachel Notley, the new premier of Alberta, doesn't like him. And she decided that she would bar his representatives, not him, because he's in Toronto, she would bar his representatives from covering press conferences at the provincial level in Alberta. Now, that didn't last long because literally nobody, including the CBC and all kinds of left-leaning organizations, said this is alarming and you can't do that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But it brings up the question I find fascinating. Who's a journalist? Well, I I don't think that actually, with all due respect, is the question. I don't think it matters. Uh, What matters is here that... Well, it matters if you're trying to get access to... I don't think it matters. I think that that... Obviously, Notley was wrong. Uh, what is painful here is, look, I can I tell a brief story? Uh, when, when Sun collapsed, Ezra asked me to work for the rebel. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I just, I, you don't need, I, I'm on the left now. I, I'm not on brand. You don't want me. He said, no, you'll have complete, complete control over what you, and I said, okay. And I was there for a week and I did some very politically neutral commentaries. And a week later, he fired me because I'd written a piece in the National Post supporting the sex ed curriculum. So, you know, I, I 
ideas of, 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 of free speech and what is allowed and tolerance and liberalism are different in different people's minds. She was absolutely wrong to do this. She played into Ezra's hands. She's given him more publicity than he's had probably since he started the thing. It's probably increased the financial appeal of the rebel too. I, I find it to be hysterical. I don't think it adds anything to the debate. I think it diminishes the conversation, but that's not the point. The point is they had someone there who wanted to report on what was going on and because she was not a fan of the NDP government, she was banned, and that is unacceptable. I think governments, though, and media relations, having d- been done the flack thing before, it, it is within, you have to look out for the best interest of your people and, and, and you know, the person that you're representing. They so, certainly didn't do that, did No, they? they didn't. They didn't. And I agree with you. I, I think the larger aspect here, and I think we can probably all agree on this, the government has no place on telling journalists whether or not they're journalists. That should be something reserved, you know, kind of a like the way, it, it should, they should handle it amongst themselves. That's like why you Ottawa, have press galleries. A, a yeah, press gallery. That yeah. was an excuse, and, and they, they didn't, I mean, they, they didn't care who was a journalist. They wanted an excuse excuse to say we're not letting the rebel in. Right. Yeah, of course. But I mean, they used it un- un- under this guise. But I mean, it's not unlike, you know, Stephen Harper once criticized a CTV cameraman for for asking a question and kicked him out. Like mm. this happens all the time. And, and I think journalists need to push back. And, and this is why you have press galleries. And I think it's weird that the Edmonton uh, legislature doesn't. I, I do find it odd that they don't have a press gallery, uh, but but I, one thing that got everyone's backs up, and why, Jerry, to your point, why why the CBC even came to Ezra's defense, is that in, in part of the rationale, one of the comms people said, well, you know, they're they're kind of pundits, and they acknowledge themselves as pundits and commentators rather than strict reporters. And the challenge with that, where it got a lot of people frustrated, is me. I mean, I, I get you know exclusive polls, I write off of them, I get FOI documents, uh, so I'm you know do some reportage, but I've always only ever been a, an opinion person. I write op columns and so forth, but I have had a pass to go on Parliament Hill and confront Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau and cabinet ministers, and I can do it at City Hall and everywhere. So this kind of idea that because you end up having an opinion, you somehow have no right to be there, that's what hit folks at even the CBC uh, as the wrong attitude. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the purpose of a free press is, as I said on my show earlier last this past week, is not so that you can be up on the fashions, it's not so you can have a crossword, it's not even for the sports scores. It is so that people will dig into what politicians are doing. That's the only reason we have freedom of press, and politicians don't like it. Yeah, and I mean, like, look at countries that that the governments do decide who is, you know, who who is a journalist and who has access. We don't want to be like them. No, but but once again, I mean, it, that that was a mere excuse. They can't stand the rebel because the rebel is actually making Notley look particularly bad, and so they said, "You're not a journalist." It was just, "How can we try and get rid of these people?" Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Viewpoints on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010.